Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 194. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is a big, fine, and a massive, massive dandy. We've got a Hugo-nominated story coming up today, Eric James Stone's story, no less. So look out for that. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have Film Talk by Dennis Lane. Then we have the main fiction, which is That Leviathan Who Thou Hath Made by Eric James Stone, nominated for Hugo Award this year. And we have our fact article by Morgan Saletta Everything. There you go, can't get better than that. I think what we'll do is we'll jump in straight in with Film Talk. Dennis, sir. The final programme. A review from the Jacaranda City. Welcome to my third movie review, recorded in a freezing cold Pretoria wardrobe. Last time I commented that I'd brought you two reviews about the end of the world as we know it, and that I would look at more cheerful fare this time. I was half telling the truth. The final programme, known in the US as The Last Days of Man on Earth, is about the end of an age, but at least it doesn't take itself too seriously. I thought long and hard before I decided to review this movie, but I feel that I shouldn't always concentrate on the acknowledged classics. Sometimes one needs to be warned about a possible clunker so that you can head to the DVD store with your eyes wide open. The final programme was released in 1973 and I first saw it on a Sunday night on BBC Two, probably in 1978. 
My friends and I were excited about the prospect, as not only was it a film of a Michael Moorcock book, we were all compulsive Moorcock readers, but it was rumoured that there would be boobs. Unfortunately, Sandy Ratcliffe's boobs were not the only ones on display. The story is jerky and confusing, and if there was an I Spy book for overacting, one could get your feather and order of merit after watching just this one movie. However, that said, it is fun and gives some insight into the early 1970s for those who may not have lived through the period. The credits state that it was designed, written and directed by Robert Fuest, who was art director and later director of The Avengers. In my opinion, he would have been better off sticking to the design and direction and not taking on the role of rewriting Moorcock's work. The movie features a who's who of British character actors and stars John Finch as Jerry Cornelius. Finch's previous film roles were supporting ones in Hammer's The Vampire Lovers and The Horror of Frankenstein, both from 1970, followed by the title role in Roman Polanski's gory and controversial Macbeth of 1971, and then the part of the prime suspect in Alfred Hitchcock's serial killer movie Frenzy from 1972. The main co-star is Jenny Runacre as Miss Brunner, a method actress more known for her performances in such films as Pier Paolo Pasolini's The Canterbury Tales and Michelangelo Antonioni's The Passenger. Given the two stars, it's not surprising that the final programme comes across as the bastard son of kitsch horror and confusing art movies. The film opens with a group of fur-clad Sami men walking across a frozen plain. They're then prepared to burn a coffin. Up walks Jerry Cornelius in a much more fashionable fur. We don't find out until later who was being cremated, it was his father, or why we are in the frozen north. There's a flashback showing Jerry discussing the present age that began on February the 18th, 3102 BC in the afternoon with Professor Hera and the fact that the Dark Age is about to end. That is about as sensible as it gets. Most of the rest of the movie is taken up with dystopian scenes of the coming end of the world and the Cornelius family feud as a vital microfilm is being sought. The point of the movie, in my opinion, is not so much to provide a logical narrative, but to flash scenes of the prologue to Gotterdammerung onto our retina. From Major Wrongway Lindbergh, played in a delightfully over-the-top manner by Sterling Hayden, we learn that Amsterdam is 28 square miles of white ash, following a mistake by the US Air Force. There's a towering pile of cars clogging the Thames. Jerry Cornelius survives the movie through a combination of washing down pills with Bell's whiskey and keeping his blood sugar up with chocolate digestives. Ronald Lacey, who plays Shades, is even creepier than when he played Tort the Gestapo officer who got his hand branded in Raiders of the Lost Ark. All in all, the individual scenes are fascinating to watch. I just wish that they'd fitted together better. Jerry meets up with Miss Brunner and her three tame scientists and we learn that she is a freelance programmer and that she is working to create a program of the sum total of all human knowledge, the program for immortality. Along the way, she somehow absorbs her assistant Jenny acquiring the ability to play the piano, 
and later she absorbs Dr. Baxter. All of the hijinks lead us by hot air balloon back to Lapland, where Miss Brunner proves her ability as a programmer by being able to distill everything from Dr. Alexander Cornelius's microfilm onto a single holorith card. She would have been perfect for the Twitter age that we're now in. The final scenes show a psychedelic coupling between Jerry Cornelius and Miss Brunner, after which a hairy ape-like thing emerges from the chamber and walks away, turns to the camera and tells us that it's a very tasty world. All in all, it's a weird, confusing, colourful ride, and I could recommend it on that basis. It is interesting to watch, but ultimately it's a triumph, if that's the right word, of style over substance. So, caveat emptor. Anyway, I must go now. I suddenly have the urge to find some whiskey and chocolate digestives. Bye. There you go. We just played Moorcock's story last couple of weeks ago. Or last week, the week before and the week before that. And it tie in nice. Thank you, Dennis, for that. So next up we have Eric James Stone's story, That Leviathan Whom Thou Hast Made, which actually won a Nebula Award for Best Novelette, and it's actually in, you know, I was saying in the finalists for the Hugo Awards as well. So fantastic. Little heads up for Eric James Stone. He's a year younger than me. <laughs> Born in 1967, American science fiction, fantasy and horror author. This is Wikipedia. He won the 2004 Writers of the Future contest and has published in Analog Science Fiction and Fact, Intergalactic Medicine Show and Jim Bean's Universe. He became assistant editor over at Austin Scott Carr's Intergalactic Medicine Show in 2009. He received a degree in political science from Brigham Young University and went on to graduate at from Baylor Law School. Stone currently lives in Eagle Mountain, Utah. I mean, even, you know what I mean, the guy's writing and writing and writing. He's got The Girl Who Asked Too Much came out in Daily Science Fiction in March 2011. Rejigging the thing- thingamajig, if you like that, go over to Escape Pod. Played that in January 20- on the 27th. This story is narrated by Mike Allen. Mike is the writer. Remember the Button Bin, which actually was published in October 2007 in Helix Science Fiction? That's what we played on the show, and it was one of those Nebula-nominated award for Best Short Story. You'll have heard Mike's work on Diane Severson's Poetry Planet last week as well. He had a poem in there. American editor and writer of speculative fiction and poetry. And I actually didn't know that, but I knew, I knew he created Myth, Mythic Delirium, but it was 1998, so well on you, Mike, sticking out that long. You need a medal. And it was Mike who kindly let us have, if you remember, you know, and this actually went on as well in Starship Sofa Volume 2, Neil Gaiman's Conjunctions poem. Mike done that. He's also published Theodore Goss, Joe Haldeman, Ursula K. Le Guin, Sonia Taft, Catherine M. Valandier in that Mythic Delirium small press poetry journal. Well done, Mike, sir. And he's kind of Starship Sofa as well. I'm always kind of pestering him for things as well, so Mike, hats off to you. I'll put a link on to... Mike's site and to Eric James Stone's site to pop over there and say hello. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present That Leviathan Whom Thou Hast Made by Eric James Stone Seoul Central Station floated amid the fusing hydrogen of the solar core, 
four hundred thousand miles under the surface of the sun, protected only by the thin shell of an energy shield. But that wasn't why my palm sweat slicked the plastic pulpit of the station's multi-denominational chapel. As a lifelong Mormon, I had been speaking in church since I was a child, so that didn't make me nervous either. But this was my first time speaking when non-humans were in the audience. The sole branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had only six human members, including me and the two missionaries, but there were forty-six swale members. As beings made of plasma, swales couldn't attend church in the chapel, of course, but a ten-foot widescreen monitor across the back wall showed a false-color display of their magnetic force lines, gathered in clumps of blue and red against the yellow background representing the solar interior. The screen did not give a sense of size, but at two hundred feet in length, the smallest of the swales was about double the length of a blue whale. From what I'd heard, the largest Mormon swale, Sister Emma, stretched out to almost five hundred feet, but she was nowhere near the twenty-four-mile length of the largest swale in our sun. "'My dear brothers and sisters,' I said automatically, then stopped in embarrassment. The traditional greeting didn't apply to all swell members, as they had three genders. "'And neuters,' I added. I hoped my delay would not be noticeable in the transmission. It would be a disaster if in my first talk as branch president I alienated a third of the swale population. A few minutes into my talk on the topic of forgiveness, I paused, when a woman in a skin suit sauntered through the door and down the aisle. The skin suit was a custom high-fashion one, not standard station issue, with active coloration that showed puffy white clouds floating across the sky on her breasts and waves lapping against the sandy beach at her hips. She took a seat on the second row and gazed up at me with dark brown eyes. The ring finger of her left hand was unadorned. I forced my eyes away from her and looked down at my notes for the talk. While trying to find my place again, I couldn't help thinking that maybe this woman was an answer to my prayers. The only human female listed in the branch membership records was sixty-four years old and married, as far as I knew, there wasn't an unmarried Mormon human woman within nineteen million miles in any direction, which limited my dating pool rather severely. Maybe this woman was Mormon, but not on the membership records yet, because, like me, she was a recent arrival on Seoul Central. It seemed a little unlikely, as a member would probably dress more appropriately for church. Maybe she wasn't a member, but was interested in joining. By sheer willpower, I managed to focus my talk enough to finish it coherently. After the closing hymn and prayer, I straightened my tie and stepped down from the podium to introduce myself to the new arrival. "'Hello,' I said, offering my hand. "'I'm Harry Malan.' I caught a whiff of her perfume, something that reminded me of strawberries. Her hand was dry and cool, and I regretted not having wiped my palm on my suit first. "'Dr. Juanita Merced,' she said. "'You're the new leader of this congregation?' I felt a twinge of disappointment. A member would have asked if I was the branch president. "'I am. How can I help you?' "'You can stop interfering with my studies.' Her tone was matter-of-fact, but her eyes looked at me defiantly. "'Sorry,' I said. "'I'm afraid I have no idea who you are or what studies I might be interfering with.' 
I'm a societologist. I must have given her a blank look, because she added, I study solicitations, the swales. Oh, I knew there were scientists who objected to what they believed was interference with the culture of the swales, but I had thought that since the legal right to proselytize the swales had been established two years ago, the controversy had been settled. I was obviously wrong. I regret that you feel your studies are being compromised, Dr. Merced, but the swales are intelligent beings with free will, and I believe they have the right to choose their religious beliefs. You're introducing instability to a culture that has existed far longer than human civilization, she said, raising her voice. They were traveling the stars at least a hundred thousand years before Christ was born. You're teaching them human myths that have no application for their society. The two missionaries, clean-cut young men in dark suits and ties, approached us. Is there a problem? asked Elder Beckworth. No, I said. Dr. Merced, you are free to tell the Swales what you have told me, that you believe our teachings are false. But the Swales who have joined our church have done so because they believe what we teach, and I ask you to please respect them enough to allow them that choice. She glared at me with her beautiful eyes. You're saying I don't respect them? I am not the one who tells them that they are sinful creatures who need a human to save them. I'm not here to argue, I said. And we are about to have a Sunday school class, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave. She spun around and stalked out. I watched her go, unable to deny that my body desired hers, despite our differences. What's more, intelligence was an attractive trait for me, so I regretted that she opposed me on an intellectual level. I would not be adding her to my dating pool. Somehow I doubted that fact would disappoint her. Elder Beckworth taught the Sunday school class, which was on the topic of chastity. I found myself acutely uncomfortable when he talked about Christ's teaching that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Because the Mormon Church has an unpaid volunteer clergy, my calling as branch president was the result of being sent to Seoul Central, not the reason for it. I worked as a funds manager for City America, and being stationed here gave me an eight-and-a-half-minute head start over Earth-based fund managers when it came to acting on news brought in from other star systems through the interstellar portal at the heart of the sun. From what I understood, the energy requirements for opening a portal were so staggeringly high that it could only be done inside a star. Although the Swales had been creating portals for so long, they didn't seem to know where their original home star was. Seoul Central Station was the interstellar nexus of human civilization, and I was thrilled to be there despite the limited dating opportunities. The Monday after my first day at church, I was in the middle of reviewing an arbitrage deal involving transports from two colony systems when I received a call on my station phone. Harry Malin, I answered. "'President Malin,' said a melodious alto voice, "'this is Neuter Kimball from the branch.' Since the actual names of swales were series of magnetic pulses, they took human names when interacting with us. On joining the church, Mormon swales often chose new names out of Mormon history. Neuter Kimball had apparently named itself after a twentieth-century prophet of the church. "'What can I do for you, Neuter Kimball?' 
After a pause that dragged on for several seconds, Kimball said, I need to confess a sin. This was what I had dreaded most about becoming branch president, taking on the responsibility of helping members repent of their sins. Only serious sins needed to be confessed to an ecclesiastical leader, so I braced myself emotionally and said a quick prayer that I might be inspired to help neuter Kimball through the process of repentance. Leaning back in my swivel chair, I said, well, Go ahead, neuter Kimball. I'm listening. A female merged her reproductive patterns with mine. While many swales have managed to learn how to synthesize and transmit human speech, their understanding of vocabulary and grammar was not always matched by an understanding of emotional tone. Often they sounded the same, no matter what the subject. I waited, but Neuter Kimball didn't elaborate. It took three swales to reproduce, a male, a female, and a neuter. The neuter merely acted as a facilitator. Unlike the male and female, its reproductive patterns were not passed on to the offspring. In applying the law of chastity to the swales, church doctrine said that reproductive activity was to be engaged in only among swales married to each other, and only permitted marriages of three swales, one of each sex. You aren't married to the female, are you? No. It was just a female and you, I asked. No male? Yes and yes. According to my limited knowledge of swale biology, such action could not result in reproduction. Still, humans were perfectly capable of engaging in sexual sin that did not involve the possibility of reproduction, so I figured this was analogous. Why did you do it? I asked. She did it to me. She did it to you? You mean she forced you? You didn't agree to it? Yes, yes, and no. Then it isn't a sin, I said, both horrified at the sexual assault and relieved that Neuter Kimball was innocent of any sin. If someone forced sexual conduct on you, you are not at fault. You have nothing to repent of. You are sure? Absolutely, I said. But you may want to report the swale who did this to the authorities so she won't do it to anyone else. Why won't she do it to anyone else? Neuter Kimball asked. Because they will punish her. That is human law, it said. I was taken aback. You mean it's not swale law? There is no such law among our people. The swales had supposedly been civilized for longer than humanity's history, yet they had no law against rape. That's terrible, I said. But the most important thing is that you did nothing wrong. Even if I enjoyed it? Um... I wondered for a moment why I had been called to serve here rather than some general authority of the church who had more doctrinal knowledge. I had a vague suspicion it was so the church could easily disavow my actions if I made a huge blunder. The swales were the only sentient aliens humanity had found thus far, and the swales didn't seem to know of any others, so the church's policies for dealing with non-humans were still new. I pushed those thoughts aside and focused on Neuter Kimball's question. To commit a sin, you must have the intent to do so. If you did not intend sexual activity, and it was forced upon you, then I don't think it matters whether you enjoyed it. After several more reassurances, Neuter Kimball seemed satisfied that it was not guilty of any sin, and ended the conversation. 
It took me ten minutes to calm down after the stress of counseling, but I still felt the urge to action, so I looked up Dr. Merced's phone number. We met in her office. A wall screen similar to the one in the chapel showed pods of swales moving through solar currents. I sat in a chair across from her desk and tried to keep my eyes from straying to the animated galaxies colliding on the chest of her skin suit. "'Thanks for agreeing to see me,' I said. "'We didn't part on the friendliest of terms yesterday.' She shrugged. "'I'm curious. Your predecessors never sought me out. Can I get you a cup of coffee?' "'I don't drink coffee.' "'Tea?' I saw a twinkle in her eye and realized she was yanking my chain by offering drinks that she knew were forbidden by my religion. No, thank you. But if you want to drink, go right ahead. The prohibitions of the word of wisdom apply only to members of the church. She picked up her coffee mug and took a long sip. Mmm, that is so good. I merely smiled at her. Okay, she said. Actually, the coffee here is awful. I just drink it for the caffeine. Why are you here? A member of my church was raped, I said. Her eyes widened. What? Wait, you don't mean a solicitation, do you? Yes. Solicitations do not have the concept of rape, she said. Whether they have the concept or not, I said. A female swale engaged in sexual activity with one of my neuter members without its consent. To me, that sounds like rape, or at least a sexual assault. She took a sip from her coffee mug. It may sound like it, but solicitations are not human. Their culture is different. Well, that doesn't make it right. And their physiology is different. Tell me, was your church member injured or caused any pain? No but it was afraid it might have sinned. She pointed at me. That is your fault for teaching it that sexual behavior is sinful, but physiologically sexual contact between solicitations is always pleasurable for all parties involved, and since reproduction can only occur when all three deliberately engage in sex for that purpose, casual sex never results in pregnancy. So solicitations never developed the taboos humans did regarding sexual contact. I nodded. So, if we humans hadn't developed taboos about sex, and there was no chance of your getting pregnant, then you would have no objection to my forcing you to an orgasm. She had the decency to blush. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that you can't judge solicitation behavior based on human cultural norms. After all, even your own church has had to adopt its doctrines to take differences like the three sexes into account. Not to mention there's no way you're getting a solicitation into the waters of baptism. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, I quoted. Swales are not men, as you've pointed out. No contradiction there. But you're avoiding the subject, which is that anyone, swale or human, has the right to be free from unwanted sex. If the swales don't recognize that right yet, it's time we told them about it. She rose from her chair and walked around the desk to stand facing her wall screen. She zoomed in on one particular swale. It was labeled Leviathan, Class 10. 
and its size reading showed 38,400 meters. It was hundreds of times longer than Neuter Kimball or even Sister Emma. Solicitations grow throughout their lifetime, she said, her back toward me. The correlation between size and age is not exact, but in general, the larger, the older. Some of the oldest were old before the pyramids were built. All the solicitation members of your church are very young and have very little influence within the community. Ancients like Leviathan are respected. Do you really think that you can convince a creature older than human civilization to change just because a human thinks something is wrong? Your lifetime is but an eye blink to her, if she had eyes that blinked. I pushed away my awe at the sheer size of Leviathan. Well, maybe you're right, but I believe in a god even older than that, who created both human and swale. I have to try. She turned and looked me in the eyes. I held her gaze until she sighed and said, I was always a sucker for a man with determination. She walked to her desk, wrote something on a notepaper, and handed it to me. It was an anonymous comm address with a private access code. Oh, I'm flattered, I said. And it's not that I don't find you attractive, but... She rolled her eyes. It's Leviathan's personal calm. My face flushed. Uh, thank you. I'll talk with her. Don't count on it. She hasn't bothered to talk to any of us in a couple of years. But nobody's tried talking religion at her, so... I'll do my best. With that, I beat a hasty retreat so I could recover from my embarrassment alone. Try not to offend her. She called after me. My email about the situation to the mission president, who was based in the L-5 colony but had jurisdiction over my little branch of the church, received just a short reply telling me, Use your best judgment. Follow the spirit. After a couple of days of spending my after-work hours studying up on swales and swale culture and preparing arguments about the rights of Mormon swales to control their own bodies... I didn't exactly feel ready to contact Leviathan, but I felt a strong need to do something. Sitting at my desk in my quarters, I dialed the comm address Dr. Merced had given me and waited for it to connect. It rang several times before a synthetic neuter voice came online and said, The party you are trying to reach is currently unavailable. Please leave a message after... I hung up before the tone. I hadn't prepared to leave a voicemail message but I should have realized that having Leviathan's private access code was no guarantee that she would actually answer when I called, so I spent a good ten minutes writing out the message I would leave her on voicemail. Satisfied that I had something that expressed my position firmly, yet respectfully, I dialed the number again. After two rings, a bass voice answered, Who are you? Startled, because I had expected the voicemail again, I stumbled over my words, I'm, uh, this is President Malin of the Church, of the sole central branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Dr. Merced gave me this comm address so I could talk to you about one of my, uh, a swale member of my branch. Uncertain, because the bass voice didn't strike me as particularly female, I added, Are you Leviathan? Religions interest me not. Her voice synthesis was good enough that I could hear the dismissiveness in her tone. Are you interested in the rights of swales in general? I asked. No, the lesser concern me not. I could feel all my carefully laid out arguments slipping away from me. 
How could I have even thought to relate to a being with no consideration for the rights of lesser members of her own species? Before I could think through a response, I blurted out, Do the greater concern you? During several long seconds of silence, I thought I had offended Leviathan to the point she had hung up on me. Dr. Massaid would be annoyed. When her voice returned, it almost thundered from the speakers. Who is greater than I? This had not been part of my planned approach, but at least she was still talking to me. Maybe if I could get her to understand that she would not like being manhandled, swale-handled, by larger swales, I could convince her of the need to respect the rights of smaller swales. From what I understand, swales get larger with age, I said. So wouldn't your parents be larger than you? I have no parents. None is older than I. None is larger. None is greater. I am the source from which all others came. Stunned, I was silent for a few minutes before I could ask, You are the original swale? Since they didn't seem to die of old age, it just might be true. I am the original life. Before there was life on any planet, I was. After eons alone, I grew into a swale, then gave life to others. Where was your god when I was creating them? A verse from the book of Job sprang to my mind. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Nothing in my research had prepared me for this. Speculation about the evolution of swales generally assumed that swales were descended from less complex plasma beings in another star, since no simpler forms had been found in the sun. But what if what Leviathan claimed was true? There were no simpler forms. She had evolved as a single being. I was out of my depth, but shook my head to clear my thinking. All this was beside the point. What matters is that new... I caught myself before breaking confidentiality. One of my swale church members believes in a God who has commanded against sexual activity outside of marriage. It just isn't right for larger swales to force smaller ones to have sex. I appeal to you as the first and greatest of the swales. Command your people against coerced sexual activity. Seconds of silence ticked away. Come to me, she said. You and your swale church member. The call disconnected. Come to me? Dr. Merced's voice was incredulous. It was pretty much an order, I said, settling into the chair across from her desk. I suppose it's easy enough for swales, but it's not like I have access to a solar shuttle. The sociologist did, so I hoped I could sweet-talk her into giving me a ride. Beginner's luck. Her tone was exasperated. I've been here five years, and I've never had a chance to observe a Class Ten solicitation up close. She sighed. Not that we can directly observe them, anyway, but there's just something about actually being there, instead of taking readings remotely. Well, now's your chance, I said. Take me to Leviathan. It's not that easy. Our observation shuttle is booked for projects months in advance. Oh. There went that idea. How was I supposed... Did Leviathan say why she wanted you to go to her? No. Just told me to come, then hung up. She pursed her lips, then said, It's just very unusual. 
There isn't really anything that Leviathan can say to you in person that she can't say over the comm. I thought about that, and I think it's size. Maybe she thinks that if my church member sees how small I am compared with Leviathan, it will give up Mormonism. That's actually a good theory, Dr. Merced looked at me with apparently newfound respect. Size does matter to the solicitations, and your church members are among the youngest, least powerful, and therefore most likely to be awed into obeying a larger one, and they probably don't come any larger than Leviathan. According to her, she's the largest. Leaning forward in her seat, Dr. Merced said, She told you that? Well, not just that. She claimed to be not only the original swale, but the original plasma life form. She said she became a swale. In a tone of amazement, Dr. Merced took the Lord's name in vain. She reached over to her calm and punched in an address. When a man responded, she said, Taro, I think you need to come hear this. Looking at me, she said, Dr. Sasaki specializes in solicitation evolutionary theory. When Dr. Sasaki, a gray-haired Japanese gentleman, arrived, I relayed to him what Leviathan had told me about her history. When I finished, he said, It's not impossible. I always suspected the Class Tens knew more about their origins than they bothered to tell us. But forgive me, M Mr. Malin. How do we know Leviathan actually told you she was the original life-form? Why would she choose to tell you and not one of us? He motioned toward himself and Dr. Merced. I decided not to be offended at the implication that I was a liar. I can't say I know why Leviathan does anything, but... You scientists who study the swales have strict rules about interfering with swale culture, and you try to avoid offending them. To me, that smacks of condescension. You presume that swale culture is weak and cannot withstand any outside influence. Well, maybe the swales tend to think the same about human culture, and so they avoid interference and try not to offend us. Dr. Sasaki frowned at me. I disagree with your interpretation of the motives for our rules regarding interference in solicitation culture, and I don't see how it's relevant. I apparently offended Leviathan. I glanced at Dr. Merced and said, Sorry, but I didn't realize that implying there were swales greater than her would cause offense. Her response was to tell me I was wrong, that there could be no swale greater, and that's when she explained she was the first. Because I made her angry, something you guys avoid thanks to the rules, Leviathan responded without worrying whether she would offend me or interfere with human culture. How would this information interfere with human culture? asked Dr. Merced. Some swale-worshipping cults have already sprung up on Earth, I said. Just imagine what will happen when the news gets out that Leviathan claims to be the original life-form in the universe. With a suspicious look, Dr. Sasaki said, News you will be only too happy to spread, I'm sure. There is only one Leviathan, and Harry Malin is her prophet. My jaw dropped. What? That's where this is headed, isn't it? he said. You go out and talk to Leviathan, then come back with some revelation from— No! I stood up. Absolutely not. I believe my own religion and have no intention of becoming Leviathan's prophet. All I want is for the swales in my branch to be free from harassment. You're just jealous because I got handed the information you've been bumbling about trying to find. He shot to his feet. But before he could say anything, Dr. Merced said, Stop it! both of you. 
Dr. Suzaki and I stood silent, glaring at each other. Taro, said Dr. Merced, I think you're being unfair to Mr. Malin. I truly believe he's just trying to do what's best for his congregants. I gave her a grateful look. Even if he is misguided, she added. As for you, Mr. Malin, there is no reason to insult Dr. Suzaki. With a bow of my head, I said, I apologize, Dr. Suzaki. Apology accepted, he said. I noticed he did not apologize to me, but after a moment that didn't matter, because Dr. Merced said, Now that we're all friends again, Taro, will you let us preempt your next expedition in the shuttle to go talk to Leviathan? With the shuttle flight arranged for the next day, I returned to my quarters to work out other details. My Earth-based manager at City America granted my request for two days' vacation time. Then I dialed Neuter Kimball's comm. Hello, President Malin, it said. Hello, Neuter Kimball. You remember our discussion the other day about whether swales should be allowed to force sexual conduct on each other? Of course. Well, I've spoken with Leviathan about it and she has requested that we go to see her. Neuter Kimball did not reply. Are you still there? I said. You told Leviathan about me? It said. It might just have been the voice synthesis, but there seemed to be fear in its tone. I did not mention you by name, I said, glad I'd managed to avoid slipping up. But she requested that I bring you to her. I think this is a chance to convince a swale with real authority to do something to stop sexual assault. After a short pause, Neuter Kimball said, Why do you say Leviathan has real authority? She told me she is the first and greatest of all swales. Isn't that true? I asked, suddenly worried that I'd been taken in by a swale con artist. She told you? Neuter Kimball said. We are not supposed to talk of it to humans, but if she has revealed herself as a god to you, then that is her choice. A god? Leviathan is not a god. She's just... I stopped. What was I going to say? An ancient immortal being who created an entire race of intelligent beings? If that didn't fit the definition of a god, it was pretty close. Neuter Kimball, if you believe Leviathan to be a god, why did you join the church? Because I do not want her as my god. Why not? Another long pause. I probably should not have said anything about her. Going to see Leviathan to plead the case for Neuter Kimball had seemed like a great opportunity. Now I wasn't so sure. If you think you will be in any danger from Leviathan, you don't have to go. Do you believe God is greater than Leviathan? Its alto voice was plaintive. Yes, I do, I said. Then I will have faith in God and go with you. Unlike the much larger solar shuttle that had brought me to Seoul Central Station, the observation shuttle had room for only two people. I strapped into the co-pilot's seat next to Dr. Merced, although we were both essentially passengers because the shuttle's computer would do the actual piloting. After getting clearance from traffic control, the computer spun up the superconducting magnets for the Heim drive, and we left the station. On a monitor, 
I watched the computer-generated visualization of our shuttle approaching the energy shield that protects us from the 27 million degrees Fahrenheit and the 340 billion atmospheres of pressure. I held my breath as the shield stretched, forming a bulge around the shuttle. Soon we were in a bubble, still connected by a thin tube to the shield around the station. Then the tube snapped, and our bubble wobbled a bit before settling down to a sphere. You can start breathing again, said Dr. Merced with a wry smile. I did. It was that noticeable? With a chuckle, she said, The energy shield is not going to fail. It's a self-sustaining reaction powered by the energy of the solar plasma around it. Yeah, but on the station I can usually avoid thinking about what would happen if for some reason it did fail. The good news is, if it did fail, you wouldn't notice. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's a backup system? I asked. No, she grinned. You'll just be dead before you have time to notice. Thank you for that tremendously comforting insight, Dr. Merced, I said. Look, we're going to be shipmates for the next couple of days, so why don't you drop the Dr. Merced bit and just call me Juanita? I nodded. Thank you, Juanita. And you can call me... Your Excellency. Juanita snorted. I can already tell this is going to be a long trip. Oh, looks like our escort has arrived. On the monitor, a swale twice the size of our energy shield bubble undulated closer. A text overlay read, Kimball, Class 1, Neuter. Let's get the full view, she said, and pressed a few buttons. I gasped, 
as a full holographic display surrounded us, as if we were traveling in a glass sphere. Against the yellow background of the sun, a giant swirl of orange and red swam alongside us. Kimball was superimposed in dark green letters. Can I talk to it? I asked. Computer set up an open channel with Kimball, said Juanita. Channel open, said the computer. Hello, Neuter Kimball, I said. It's nice to finally meet you. It is nice to meet you too, President Malin, although I hope you will forgive me for not shaking your hand. I smiled. Forgiven. I was constantly surprised how much Swales seemed to know about our customs and culture compared with how little we seemed to know of theirs. And I'm here with Dr. Merced, who is a scientist. Juanita laughed. It's known me a lot longer than it's known you. Hello, Juanita, said Neuter Kimball. I'm glad you are with us. Shortly after I began my work here, Juanita said, it was the first solicitation I observed personally. It went by the human name Pemberley back then. Another swale had transmitted pride and prejudice to me, and I decided to seek out humans to see what they were like, Neuter Kimball said. You are a fascinating race. The thought came to me that maybe there had been some pride and prejudice between me and Juanita, possibly because she was annoyed that a swale she particularly liked had become a Mormon. But maybe we could work out our differences and... Ah, shove that thought away. Swales are also fascinating. I hope to understand you as well some day as you understand us. Kimball, our shuttle is on a course to take us to Leviathan, so you can just follow us, said Juanita. But stay at least fifty meters away from us. I will keep my distance, said Neuter Kimball. I must have shown my puzzlement, because Juanita pressed a button to mute the call and said, Solicitations and energy shields don't play well together. A few years back, a Class One about Kimball's size was showing off for a couple of observers and glanced off a shuttle's energy shield. It tore a big chunk off the solicitation that took months to heal. What about the shuttle and the people inside? Sometimes I got the feeling she cared more about swales than about people. After a moment, Juanita said, This shuttle was the replacement. What happened? The shield did not collapse, but part of the solicitation made it through, probably because the shield works similarly to how solicitations hold their bodies together. So the shield sort of merged with the solicitation's skin. When they recovered the shuttle... They found that the plasma had vaporized part of it, including the crew compartment. I guess it's good I didn't hear about this before coming on this trip, I said. Don't worry. This shuttle was built within a blade of shell specifically to withstand that sort of accident, she said. So I'm really more concerned with what would happen to Kimball if it bumped into us. Or Leviathan? Leviathan's so big, she might not even notice. I spent most of the sixteen-hour trip polishing and improving what I would say to Leviathan to convince her to outlaw coerced sexual activity. I had been a debater in high school and college, so I felt I knew how to construct a convincing argument, but eventually I reached the point where I felt I was making my prepared speech worse, not better. Approaching destination, the computer said. I blinked a few times to clear my eyes, straightened up in my seat, and began looking around. Neuter Kimball's orange and red form moved silently beside us. I scanned the holographic image for more orange and red, but didn't see any. 
There, said Juanita, pointing ahead of us. She pressed a button, and dark green letters sprang up. Leviathan, class ten, female. Staring harder, I noticed a bright spot above the letters. As we drew closer, I could distinguish white, violet, and blue swirling together. She is not orange or red. It's all false color anyway, Juanita said. But this imaging system uses color to indicate energy levels. Leviathan is actually hotter than the surrounding solar plasma. We think she carries out fusion inside herself. Leviathan grew in our view, stretching out to fill most of the holographic screen in front of us. The intricate dance of violet and blue amid the white was mesmerizing. Eventually she shone so brightly that I had to squint to reduce the glare. Aren't we getting too close? I asked. We're still three kilometers away, Juanita said. But she added, Computer, hold position relative to Leviathan. Neuter Kimball, are you ready? I asked. I feel a bit like a Minadai going before King Noah, it said. I kind of agreed, but I said, Try to think of it as a mon going before King Lamoni instead. That would be better, said Neuter Kimball. But I am ready in any case. Juanita hit the mute button. What was that about? References to the Book of Mormon. Abinadi was burned at the stake after preaching to King Noah, but King Lamoni was converted by Ammon's preaching. She just shook her head, muttering something about fairy tales, then said, Computer, set up an open channel to Leviathan. Channel open, the computer replied. Leviathan, this is President Malin, I said. I have come with my church member, Neuter Kimball, as you requested. We petition you to tell your people— Silence, human, boomed the voice from the speaker. It is not yet time for you to speak. I shut up. You will come with me, Leviathan said. Her form brightened. There was a blinding flash, then the holographic system compensated and lowered its brightness. It took several seconds before the afterimage cleared enough for me to make out shapes. Leviathan still loomed in front, and Neuter Kimball remained beside us. Uh-oh, said Juanita. What? I blinked hard, trying to clear my vision. The sun's background seemed blue instead of yellow. I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Juanita tapped at her keyboard. Leviathan ported us to another star, one with a core much hotter than the sun, Looks like the shield is holding for now. She took the Lord's name in vain, or possibly it was a heartfelt prayer for help, and added, We're stuck here unless she takes us back. What about Neuter Kimball? I asked. Only a class six or larger can open a portal on its own. Green letters began popping up on the screen. Unknown, class ten, male. Unknown, class nine, female. Unknown, class ten, neuter. Unknown, class eight, male. My eyes adjusted enough that I could see their forms. Dozens of swales surrounded us, all of them tagged class eight or higher. What have you gotten us into? Juanita said. I said a silent prayer and hoped for the best. It's a great opportunity for both of us. Think of what you're going to discover. She took a deep breath. You're right. It's just that I was prepared to study Leviathan... Not sixty class eight and up. No one's ever seen more than three or four giant ones together. Is Leviathan the biggest one here? After checking a readout, Juanita said, Yes, but not by much. She pointed at a swale off to the left. That male is only about two percent smaller. 
So it looks like she wasn't lying about that. She nodded her agreement, then said, Why did you say it's a great opportunity for you? I swept my arm across the view. These must be the most prestigious swales, the leaders. If I can talk to them, convince them to make a law against sexual assault, then the smaller swales will accept it. That has to be why Leviathan brought me and Neuter Kimball here. You are wrong, said Neuter Kimball. Juanita must have taken the mute off at some point. Why do you say that? This is a death watch council, said Neuter Kimball. They are here to watch me die, so they can tell all swales that my death was deserved. What? I said. What have you done? I'm sure Leviathan will... Leviathan's voice cut Neuter Kimball off. This little one has abandoned me in favor of a human god. Such error I could forgive, but on its behalf, the tiny human seeks to impose its moral code on us. The human's mind is infinitesimal compared to ours. The human's life is short. The history of its race is short. It is the least of us, and yet it seeks power over us. I don't seek power over... I began... Silence! Leviathan thundered. The human must see the error of its ways. Kimball! Yes, Leviathan? Your life is forfeit, but I will grant reprieve if you will renounce the human religion and return to me. I had read of martyrdom in the scriptures and history of the church all my life, but nowadays it was supposed to be a merely academic exercise as you examined your faith to see if it was strong enough that you would die for the gospel of Christ. Actual killing over religious belief wasn't supposed to happen anymore. And I found my own faith lacking, as I hoped that Neuter Kimball's faith was weak, that it would deny the faith and live rather than be killed. I am to be a bit an eye after all. "'President Malin,' said Neuter Kimball. "'I choose to live as a Mormon, and I will die as one if it be God's will.' "'It is my will,' said Leviathan. "'And I am the only God who concerns you.' Tendrils of white plasma reached out toward Neuter Kimball. "'I am the greatest of all,' said Leviathan. "'Bear witness to my judgment.' I hit the mute button and said, "'I've got to stop this. This is my fault.' Juanita's eyes glistened. I warned you about interfering, but it's too late to do anything now. No, I said. If you're willing to drive this thing into Leviathan's tendrils, it may give Neuter Kimball a chance to escape. She stared at me. The shuttle's meant to survive a glancing blow. A direct hit like that, we could die. The tendrils closed around Neuter Kimball. I know, and that's why I'm asking you. I can't force you to risk your life to save someone else's. I hoped I was right about how much she cared about Swales, and Neuter Kimball in particular. After looking out at Neuter Kimball, then back at me, she said, Computer manual navigation mode. She grabbed the controls and began steering us toward the white bands connecting Leviathan to Neuter Kimball. I turned off the mute. Leviathan, you claim to be the greatest. In size you probably are. White filled the view ahead. But not in love, I said speaking quickly, as I didn't know how much time I had left. Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this. Then he lay down his life for his friends. He was willing to die for the least of us, while you are willing to kill the least... A flash of bright light and searing heat cut me off. I felt a sudden jolt, then blackness. And nausea. 
After a few moments, I realized nausea probably meant I was still alive. Juanita? I'm here, she said. The darkness was complete, and I was weightless. Maybe I was dead, although this wasn't how I'd pictured the afterlife. What happened? I asked. I'll tell you what didn't happen. The energy shield didn't fail. The ablative shell didn't fail. We didn't die. So what did happen? Juanita let out a long, slow breath. Best guess, electromagnetic pulse wiped out all our electronics. The engine's dead. Artificial gravity's gone. Life support's gone. Comm system's gone. Everything's gone. Any chance? No, she said. You didn't even let me finish. No chance of anything. It's not fixable, and even if it was, I haven't a clue how to fix any of those things, even if it weren't totally dark in here. Do you? No. And no help is coming from Seoul Central, because not only do they not know we're in trouble, but also we're in another star that could be halfway across the galaxy. When the air in here runs out, we die. It's that simple. Oh. I realized she was right. Do you think... Maybe we succeeded in freeing Neuter Kimball? Maybe, but it didn't exactly look like Kimball was trying all that hard to escape. Well, I said, maybe it was thinking about how Abinadi's martyrdom led one of the evil king's priests to repent and become a great prophet. Perhaps Neuter Kimball believed something similar would happen to one of the great swales who... Whatever Neuter Kimball believed she said, her voice acidic. It was because you and your church filled its mind with fairy tales of martyrs. I bit back an angry reply. Part of me felt she was right. At the end, Neuter Kimball had seemed to embrace the role of martyr. Would it have done so if not for the stories about martyrs in the scriptures? And I had been willing enough to risk my life. But now that I was going to die... I found myself afraid. Juanita didn't seem to need a reply from me. And what's the point of martyrs, anyway? A truly powerful god could save his followers rather than let them die. Where's God now that you really need him? What good is any of this? Look, I'm sorry, I said. If it weren't for me, you'd be safe at home, and Neuter Kimball would be alive. I've made a mess of things. Yes. Hours passed, floating in darkness. It was hard to tell how many. I spent it in introspection and prayer, detailing all my faults that had led me here. Biggest of all was pride. The idea that I, Harry Malin, would, through sheer force of will and a good speech, change a culture that had existed for billions of years. I thought back to what I had been told while serving as a nineteen-year-old missionary on Mars. You don't convert people. The Spirit of the Lord does that, and even then only if they are willing to be converted. Juanita spoke. You were just trying to do what you thought was right, and you were trying to protect the rights of smaller swales, so I forgive you. Thank you, I said. The shuttle jolted. What was that? I asked. My body sank down into my seat. It sounded... 
An ear-splitting squeal from the right side of the shuttle drowned out the rest of her reply. I twisted my head around and saw sparks flying from the wall. Then a chunk of the hull flew away, and light streamed in, temporarily blinding me. "'They're still alive!' said a man. "'Tell Kimball they're still alive!' All we got from the paramedics was that a large swale had dropped off our shuttle and neuter Kimball just outside Seoul Central Station's energy shield. Neuter Kimball had called the station, and the shuttle had been towed into a dock, where they cut through the hull to rescue us. It wasn't until Juanita and I were sitting in a hospital room where an autodoc gave us injections to treat our radiation burns that we were able to talk to Neuter Kimball. It was Leviathan who brought us back here, it said. I was stunned. But why? And why didn't she kill you? When she saw that you were willing to die to save me, though I am not even of your own species, she was curious. She asked me why you would do such a thing. So I transmitted the Bible and the Book of Mormon to her. Then she brought us here, in case you were still alive. And you're not hurt from what she did to you? I asked. I will recover, said Neuter Kimball. Before she left, Leviathan declared that from this time forward, Mormon swales are not to be forced into sexual activity. That's great news! I had won. No, I corrected myself. The victory was not mine. I thank thee, Lord, I prayed silently. Leviathan also had a personal message for you, President Malin. She said to remind you of what King Agrippa said to Paul. I nodded. I understand. Thanks for passing that along. After the call was over, Juanita said, What was that message about? Another Book of Mormon story? No, it's from the Bible. St. Paul preached before King Agrippa, and the king's response was, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. So no, Leviathan hasn't become Mormon, but God softened her heart so she didn't kill Neuter Kimball, or us for that matter. Back on the shuttle, you were certain we were going to die. You asked where God was when I really needed him. Well, God came through. Juanita puffed out an exasperated breath. Typical. What do you mean by that? I asked, as the autodoc signaled that my treatment was complete. In one story, the preacher converts the king. In another, the king kills the preacher. And in a third, neither happens. There's no evidence that God comes through. She pointed at me. As I see it, you came through. By mentioning that greater love thing, you hit Leviathan where it counted, her pride at being the greatest. I shook my head. I'm not taking credit for this. After we walked out of the hospital, she gave me a tight hug that reminded me how much I was attracted to her. But I knew it would never work out between us. Our worldviews were just too different. So I was still a single Mormon man with no dating prospects within ninety million miles. And no, an attractive single Mormon woman did not arrive on the next solar shuttle. What would be the point of life if God solved all my problems? O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made.
to play therein. Psalm 104, verses 24 to 26. There you go. Will it win a Hugo Award? It's already won a Nebula Award. Who can tell? Finally, it is our very own Morgan Saletta with his everything. Morgan, what's going on now, sir? Hello and welcome to this month's Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta. Today's installment is part three in a three-part series. The first part dealt with space arcs and colony ships. The second part dealt with space colonies and habitats that might one day be built by human beings and occupy our current solar system. This third part deals with those large, mysterious constructs of long-dead ancient alien races or space-faring civilizations far advanced beyond humanity's primitive technological prowess, constructs which loom large and enigmatically across the dark, mirrored space of science fiction. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Islands in the Void Part 3, Big Dumb Objects. Science fiction is full of huge mysterious objects, often of an extraterrestrial, alien nature. The huge ship in Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama, resembling an enormous O'Neill cylinder, proposed by O'Neill several years after the publication of Clarke's book, is an early example. Like the monolith of Clarke and Kubrick's 2001, these objects lend mystery, wonder, and often an element of transcendence to the works they appear in. In the parlance of science fiction critics, these megastructures are known, in a manner at once both humorous and serious, as big dumb objects, or BDOs for short. The term is ascribed to literary critic Roz Cavani, but it was brought into general use by Peter Nichols, co-editor of the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, in an article titled, Big Dumb Objects and Cosmic Enigmas, The Love Affair Between Space Fiction and the Transcendental, which appears in Gary Westfall's book, Space and Beyond, The Frontier Theme in Science Fiction, Nichols describes how he came to include the term in the encyclopedia. All these matters were in the forefront of my mind when I came to revise the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, a task in which my primary responsibility was to rewrite and rethink all those entries dealing with the themes of science fiction. This brings us to April Fool's Day, 1992, that being a day on which practical jokes are traditionally carried out. On that day I was exhausted from writing theme entries, and my brain was hurting. So I decided to write an April Fool's entry. I would pretend that a phrase that I'd always liked, originated by the critic Roz Cavani, but not in general use, was actually a known critical term. I would write an entry called Big Dumb Objects in a poker-faced style, suggesting an even more absurd critical term to be used in its place, megalotropic SF. But the joke was on me, because as I came to write, I realized that the subject, which was vast, enigmatic alien artifacts, many examples later, was not only genuinely interesting, but at the heart of what attracted people to science fiction, and even stranger, I realized that no matter what literary shortcomings you found in Big Dumb Object SF, and believe me, there are plenty, such stories were usually good to read. Nichols goes on to write, Big Dumb Objects, or Enigmatic Alien Artifacts, are so called for me for obvious reasons, 
the most important being the pun on dumb, unable to communicate, and sometimes silly. They are normally found in space or on alien planets, are normally opaque to human knowledge and senses, and are normally very big. Interestingly, alongside such videos as Clark's monolith, the spaceship Rama, and Greg Bear's Eon, Nichols also lists James Blish's flying cities from the Cities in Space series, which, although not alien but human in nature, meet the definition of VDO in other aspects. Abandoned alien spacecraft or space stations are a common type of big dumb object. One of my favorites is Gateway in Frederick Pohl's Heechee series. If you haven't read Gateway and the following books, I highly recommend them. The artificial analyst who the protagonist names Siegfried von Schrink is one of my favorite AIs in science fiction. So, now that you know what they are, let's talk about some specific BDOs. One of the most famous big dumb objects is Larry Niven's Ringworld from the 1970 Hugo and Nebula award-winning novel of the same name. The Ringworld is a truly vast construct, a ring circling a sun with a diameter about that of Earth's orbit and a whopping million miles wide. Of course, such a massive megastructure, with a surface area equal to millions of planets, would have to be constructed of a remarkably, if not impossibly, strong material. And for this, Niven invented scrith, a grayish, translucent material, which is at once almost frictionless, enormously strong, with a tensile strength approaching the strong nuclear force. And it is also amazingly effective as a radiation shield, blocking even a large proportion of neutrinos, for which most matter is famously transparent, as it were. Here are some excerpts from Ringworld, describing Louis Wu and his companions, the Kazin, speaker to animals, the puppeteer Nessus, and the incredibly lucky Tila Brown, and their first encounter with Ringworld. The G2 star was a blazing white point. Lewis, returning from other stars, had seen Sol looking very like this from the edge of the solar system. But this star wore a barely visible halo. Lewis would remember this, his first sight of the Ringworld. From the edge of the system, the Ringworld was a naked eye object. And another excerpt shortly thereafter. They stood looking over Speaker's shoulder as Speaker activated the scope screen. He found the arc blue line of the ring world's inner surface, touched the expansion button. One question answered itself almost immediately. Something at the edge, said Lewis. Keep the scope centered on the rim, Nessus ordered. The rim of the ring expanded in their view. It was a wall, rising inward toward the star. They could see its black, space-exposed outer side silhouetted against the sunlit blue landscape. A low rim wall, but low only in comparison to the ring itself. If the ring is a million miles across, Lewis estimated, the rim wall must be at least a thousand miles high. Well, now we know, that's what holds the air in. Would it work? It should. The ring's spinning for about a gravity. Little air might leak over the edges over the thousands of years, but they could replace it. To build a ring at all, they must have had cheap transmutation, a few tenths stars per kiloton, not to mention a dozen other impossibilities. I wonder what it looks like from the inside. Speaker heard, and he touched a control point, and the view slid. The magnification was not yet great enough to pick up details. Bright blue and brighter white slid across the scope screen, and the blurred straight edge of a navy blue shadow. The further rim slid into view. Here the rim wall was tilted outwards. Nessus, standing in the doorway with his heads poised above Speaker's shoulders, ordered, 
Give us what magnification you can. The view expanded. Mountains, said Tila. How lovely! For the rim wall was irregular, sculptured like eroded rock, and was the color of the moon. Mountains a thousand miles high. In the sequel to Ringworld, Ringworld Engineers, Niven addressed some of the engineering problems of the Ringworld, most famously its instability. In the introduction to the book, Niven writes, Ringworld is ten years old, and I have never stopped getting letters about it. People have been commenting on the assumptions, overt and hidden, and the mathematics and the ecology and the philosophical implications, precisely as if the Ringworld were a proposed engineering project and they were being paid for the work. He goes on to detail some of the contributions and contributors, including Freeman Dyson, more on him later, and, somewhat famously in science fiction circles, the problem of the Ringworld's instability, writes Niven. From all directions came news of the need for attitude jets. During the 1971 World Science Fiction Convention, MIT students were chanting in the hotel hallways, The Ringworld is unstable! He concludes, you who did all the work and wrote all those letters, be warned that this book would not exist without your unsolicited help. I hadn't the slightest intention of writing a sequel to Ringworld. I dedicate this book to you. Well, he may not have intended to, but he went on to write two more Ringworld books, The Ringworld Throne and Ringworld's Children, which I must confess I have not read, but are on my list. The Ringworld has inspired other science fiction megastructures, notably the orbitals of Ian M. Banks' culture series and the rings of the Halo video game series and its spin-off novels. Incidentally, the Ringworld itself was inspired, according to Niven, by Freeman Dyson's Dyson Sphere, of which I will speak shortly. Ian M. Banks' orbitals are much smaller than Ringworld's and orbit a star much like a planet would. They are, nevertheless, huge objects with billions of residents, the culture's orbitals have a hub at the center, which houses the enormously intelligent mind, or governing AI, which looks after and is in personal contact with each and every one of its orbital's residents. The orbitals are built of sections which are sculptured into different landscapes and environments for the residents' fun and entertainment. After all, Banks's culture is a post-scarcity society with an emphasis on hedonistic pleasures for its citizens. Banks's books are full of big dumb objects. In Look to Windward, which is principally set on the culture orbital Masak, we are also introduced to air spheres, huge air-filled bubbles the size of planets and surrounded by an artificially constructed membrane, inside of which strange life forms develop and evolve over, literally, billions of years. In Matter, much of the action takes place on a shell world, a planet-sized artificial construct of hollow concentric spheres. Banks describes it thus. The shell worlds had been built by a species called the Involucra, or Veil, the best part of a billion years earlier. All were in orbits around stable main-series suns at varying distances from their stars according to the disposition of the system's naturally formed planets, though usually lying between two and five hundred million kilometers out. Long disused and fallen into disrepair, they had, with their stars, drifted out of their long-ago allotted positions, shortly after he describes their internal disposition. The shell worlds were mostly hollow. Each had a solid metallic core 1,400 kilometers in diameter. Beyond that, a concentric succession of spherical shells, supported by over a million massive, gently tapering towers, never less than 1,400 meters in diameter, 
layered out to the final surface. Even the material they were made from had remained an enigma to many of the galaxies involved civilizations at least for over half a billion years before its properties were fully worked out. From the start though, it had been obvious that it was immensely strong and completely opaque to all radiation. Also in matter, Banks describes the nest world, which is a kind of structure known as a topopolis, invented apparently by Pat Gunkel, although I've been unable to track down any references to this other than in Wikipedia. Here is Banks's description of nest world. The nest world of the Sayung Un was located in the region of space known as the 34th Pendant Flore, and seemed almost farcically enormous to Furbin. He could understand something the size of a shell world, for all that his background was one of relative primitiveness compared to others within the greater galactic hierarchy, he was not a savage. He might not understand how the spaceships of the Optimi worked. He was not even privileged to know quite how the far more crude and limited send ships of the Oct operated. But he knew that they did, and he accepted it. He knew that there were levels of science and technology, and of understanding and wisdom, well above those he was privy to, and he was not amongst those who chose simply to disbelieve in their existence. Nevertheless, the measure of the engineering behind Morthenveld nest worlds, structures built on such a scale that engineering and physics started to become the same thing, quite defeated him. The nest world was an ordered tangle of massive tubes within gigantic braids, forming colossal ropes, making up stupefyingly vast cables, constituting loops almost beyond imagining, and, Despite the fact that the transparent outer casings of each tubular component was meters thick, it all twisted, turned, and revolved, easy as a length of thread. The nest world's principal components were giant tubes full of water. They varied in diameter between ten meters and many tens of kilometers, and any individual tube might range over its length from the narrowest gauge to the greatest. They were bundled together without touching into larger braids, which were contained within encompassingly greater pipes measuring a hundred kilometers or so across, also water-filled. These two revolved independently and were also bundled within yet greater cylinders, but now on a scale of tens of thousands of kilometers and more, and were frequently covered in engraved designs and patterns many scores of thousands of kilometers across. The average nest world was a great gathered crown of tangled tubes within tubes within tubes within tubes, a halo world tens of thousands of years old, millions of kilometers across, and set circumference on to its local star, its every million kilometer long strand twisting and revolving to provide the tens of billions of Morthenveld within the vast construction with the faint, pleasant tug of gravity they were used to. Wow. That's one of the things I really truly love about Ian e. M. Banks' works that their galaxy, star, and universe spanning, just great romps across huge histories, effortlessly covering time and distance with a stroke of a pen, and, of course, filled with big dumb objects. Once you know what a big dumb object is, it's hard to stop coming up with examples, from the Destiny starship in the ongoing Stargate universe to the That's No Moon Death Star in Star Wars, but I've saved possibly the biggest and perhaps most frequently appearing BDO for last, the Dyson Sphere. Freeman Dyson, a physicist and mathematician and noted futurist, proposed the Dyson Sphere as a conceptual solution to a civilization's energy needs. According to Dyson, 
any long-lived civilization would, given ever-increasing energy demands, eventually need to harvest as much of its sun's energy as possible, perhaps even its total energy output. His solution was at once grandiose, simple, and, quite frankly, far out. Apparently inspired by a description of a similar object in Olaf Stapleton's epic Star Maker, he invented what is now known as the Dyson Sphere. In the many, many science fiction works it makes an appearance in, it is most commonly described as a solid shell surrounding a star, although, as we will see, this is, apparently, a misunderstanding of what Dyson had in mind. There is a great discussion of Dyson Spheres and some of the issues with them in Ringworld, in which Lewis Wu describes a Dyson Sphere to his companion, Tila Brown. The exchange occurs just after seeing the ring world for the first time, the description of which you heard just previously. The ring world waded beyond the hole, a checkered blue ribbon trailing across the sky. You tried to tell me about Dyson spheres, said Tila, and you told me to go pick lice out of my hair. Lewis had found a description of Dyson spheres in the ship's library. Excited by the idea, he had made the mistake of interrupting Tila's game of solitaire to tell her about it. Tell me now, she coaxed. Go pick lice out of your hair. She waited. You win, said Lewis. For the past hour he had been staring broodingly out at the ring. He was as bored as she was. I tried to tell you that the ring world is a compromise, an engineering compromise between a Dyson sphere and a normal planet. Dyson was one of the ancient natural philosophers, pre-belt, almost pre-atomic. He pointed out that a civilization is limited by the energy available to it. The way for the human race to use all the energy within its reach, he said, is to build a spherical shell around the sun and trap every ray of sunlight. Now if you'll quit giggling for just a minute, you'll see the idea. The Earth traps only about half a billionth of the sun's output, if we could use all that energy. Well, it wasn't crazy then. There wasn't even a theoretical basis for faster-than-light travel. We never did invent hyperdrive, if you'll recall. We'd never have discovered it by accident, either because we'd never have thought to do our experiments out beyond the singularity. Suppose an outsider ship hadn't stumbled across a United Nations ram robot. Suppose the fertility laws hadn't worked out. With a trillion human beings standing on each other's shoulders, and the ram ships the fastest thing around, how long could we get along on fusion power? We'd use up all the hydrogen in Earth's oceans in a hundred years. But there's more to a Dyson sphere than collecting solar power. Say you make the sphere one astronomical unit in radius, You've got to clear out the solar system anyway, so you use all the solar planets in the construction. That gives you a shell of, say, chrome steel a few yards thick. Now you put gravity generators all over the shell. You'd have a surface area a billion times as big as the Earth's surface. A trillion people could wander all their lives without ever meeting one another. Tila finally got a full sentence in edgewise. You are using the gravity generators to hold everything down? Yeah, against the inside. We cover the inside with soil. What if one of the gravity generators broke down? Picky, picky, picky. Well, you'd get a billion people drifting up into the sun, all the air swarming up after them, a tornado big enough to swallow the earth, not a prayer of getting a repair crew in, not through that kind of storm. I don't like it, Tila said decisively. Let's not be hasty. There may be ways to make a gravity generator foolproof. Not that. You couldn't see the stars. In fact, another problem with the solid Dyson sphere is that it would be gravitationally unstable, much as the MIT students realized the ring world would be, and it would eventually collide with its sun without some sort of gigantic propulsion system. Dyson, however, had intended no such thing, and has said, a solid shell or ring surrounding a star is mechanically impossible. 
The form of biosphere which I envisaged consists of a loose collection or swarm of objects traveling on independent orbits around the star. Nevertheless, the idea of a solid shell remains popular. In the galaxy spanning Heaven's Reach, David Brin describes another form of Dyson sphere, a Criswell structure, which utilizes fractal geometry to maximize light use on the interior of the shell. David Brin is an author I cannot recommend more highly in terms of the depth and reach of his ideas. The Uplift War books and associated works are must-reads for any hard science fiction lover. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything. This has been the third installment of a cluster which began with generation ships and space arcs, continued with colonies in space, and concluded with the improbably large megastructures known to science fiction critics and fans as Big Dumb Objects, or BDOs for short. Incidentally, for those of you stateside, the National Geographic Channel recently broadcast a program about construction in space in their Known Universe series. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Thanks for listening to this installment of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections in Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. Back to you, Tony. I thank you. Thank you very much, Morgan. Again, links on to Morgan's site if you want to pop over there and share some deep meaning discussions. I'm, I'm sure I would love to. So that is Starship Sofa's 194. I hope you have enjoyed it. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.